Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Matthew Thomas is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Florida State University, and we've asked him to take us on a tour of the new information that we have about the science of major depression. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Every clinician knows that there are two poles to the condition known as depression, that one pole is the biological aspect and that the other pole is the environmental or psychological aspect. However, we know that many times, if not most times, it is actually a condition that is somewhere in the middle. There is a mixture of biological and psychological aspects. Today, however, we're going to focus more on just what's new in the biological side of things. Let's begin with a genuinely intriguing observation that repeated psychiatric mood disorders can actually cause lasting structural changes in the brain. Would you walk us through a little bit of this, please? Wow, that's exactly right. There's a lot of intriguing evidence. Some of it is controversial. Some has been replicated and some has not. We know, as you mentioned, that clearly there can be external stressors, external impacts, that lead to an internal response. That's not a big surprise. When we are faced with a loss, generally our response is sadness or emptiness. When we are faced with a threat, our brain tends to respond by becoming anxious or fearful or by becoming angry or hostile. So that's sort of how the external world seems to enter our internal world. Once it enters the internal world, several changes seem to take place. And it's a very intriguing, very elaborate interplay between homeostatic systems within the brain going out to the periphery through the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis that ultimately impact the release of cytokines and a feedback loop that comes back into the brain, ultimately, we think, changing how the brain's neurons and, more importantly, glial cells respond to that peripheral signal of increased inflammatory cytokines. It's that entire loop that we think leads to changes within the brain. When we're talking about changes within the brain, we're talking about changes both within the neurons that used to really be thought of as the workhorses within the central nervous system, but there also are clearly changes now that we're picking up in the glial cells. Now, glial cells used to just be thought of as the glue or the scaffolding of the brain. Even when I was in medical school approximately 15 years ago, that's what everyone was talking about. It turns out, however, the glial cells, these glue cells, the oligodendrocytes, the astrocytes, the microglia, have a very active role within the brain. And we think that these glial cells may be susceptible to external stressors, or more specifically, major depressive disorder, and that these glial cells may degenerate, these glial cells may atrophy, these glial cells may not function properly. And when these glial cells that actually have a very active role within the nervous system are not functioning properly, they have an impact on the way neurons communicate because glial cells seem to provide the necessary support, not only for the neuron, but glial cells also provide the necessary support to maintain a healthy synaptic environment. So this is as if there's a whole new set of characters in the play that leads to depression that we really didn't know, ex well, that we knew that they existed, but we didn't know what role they were playing. 
Exactly. We had no idea what role glial cells played. And it's really been within the past, oh, 10 years within the field of psychiatry that we're beginning to look at it. But it's really just been relatively recent in the past, oh, 20 years or so that people have really been looking at glial cells as having an active role in communicating within the brain. So there seem to be, as I'm understanding you, three parts to a development of a depression. The stress, and you've obviously didn't say it, but there is a genetic vulnerability. And can we go so far as saying an injury that the cells are injured by this excessive ongoing overload of stress, or am I being too liberal with the use of the word injury? We have evidence to suggest that certain cells within the brain are vulnerable to glucocorticoids, which may be released in excessive amounts in response to our, our stress system, our stress response that's apparent from the excessive activation in the hippocampal hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. We see a surge in glucocorticoids or cortisol release. That cortisol actually seems to have a detrimental effect on synaptogenesis, and it actually may lead to some dendritic pruning within the hippocampus. So in that sense, that can be sort of an injury. There also seems to be an excessive amount of excitotoxicity. Now, glutamate, which is the major excitatory neurotransmitter within the cortex, has a dual role. On the one hand, it actually can promote long-term potentiation or memory. When glutamate is received or the glutamate signal takes place within the synapse, and glial cells have glutamate receptors on them, so do neurons. However, when glutamate is received or spills over outside the synapse and spills in the extrasynaptic space, then the glutamate actually becomes excitotoxic. And that toxicity seems to lead to atrophy of the neurons, dendritic pruning, possibly shrinkage of the neuron, and very likely actually over time may actually lead to death of some of the glial cells. We actually see a reduction in glial cells in some of the studies in particular regions of the brain in patients with chronic recurrent major depressive disorder. It's an interesting thing because now you're talking about glutamate and for so many years, shall we say, the standard was that we have three monoamines, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine, that were at the basis for most of our treatments and for most of our explanations of of depression. Now we've added yet another character, glutamate. We clearly have added another character. They're adding more all the time. When we think not only about the catecholamines, when we think not only about serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, the increase in norepinephrine that occurs following the stress response with increased activity in the HPA, we also see an increase in sympathetic tone mediated through excessive norepinephrine release from the locus ceruleus. That increased sympathetic tone affects all of the major organ systems in our periphery, including our heart, as we know, but it also seems to lead to a pro-inflammatory cascade. Inflammation. Now, this is another new member of the cast. Again, it seems so odd to think of this process as related in any manner to depression, but apparently it's not. It is not at all odd. There's a huge, growing area of research specifically focused on mood disorders, primarily major depressive disorder, and it's 
relationship to physical health. And what we're finding time and time again in study after study are increases in inflammatory markers, inflammatory cytokines. Not only are we finding an increase in these chemical signals, these chemical messengers, which go along when our body's responding to inflammation or attacks, but we're also seeing over time a clear association between major depressive disorder and multiple chronic diseases, chronic diseases such as coronary artery disease, chronic diseases and syndromes such as the metabolic syndrome, which has been studied mostly here in the United States and some smaller Finnish studies. There's also an association between major depressive disorder and type 2 diabetes. We're finding a lot of very unfortunate associations. We know that individuals with major depressive disorder, if they are post-myocardial infarction, they are far more likely to be dead six months down the road if they were depressed at the time of the hospitalization following their heart attack. All of these things are coming together, and all of the evidence seems to converge on this inflammatory pathway. This inflammatory pathway, again, that responds to external stresses in individuals who have a genetic vulnerability. There's an increase in the HPA or the stress response, increase released in cytokines and inflammatory markers in the periphery. These circulate back to the central nervous system, and those inflammatory cytokines actually and unfortunately lead to a downregulation of these neurotrophic factors, factors and chemicals that promote neuronal resilience, that promote synaptogenesis, where synapses are strengthened and made. And also, we actually are beginning to find that there's a specific enzyme, indolamine deoxygenase, that is very sensitive to inflammatory cytokines. Now, indolamine deoxygenase is actually located within the brain, within the central nervous system, and typically IDO takes tryptophan and turns it into serotonin. Unfortunately, in the presence and an imbalance with an excessive amount of inflammatory cytokines, that IDO no longer produces serotonin from tryptophan that tryptophan then gets turned into a completely different molecule, a molecule that actually is a glutamatergic agonist that actually functions on the NMDA receptor. And what we're finding again is that that same pathway, by activating the NMDA and glutamatergic pathways, seems to be neurotoxic or excitotoxic. So all of this is linked together. This is a really exciting area of research and many studies are beginning to support this line of thought. There's a new player also in this team. Its initials are BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It, it seems to be finding an increasing role as well, and I guess we need a little bit of explanation of what it is. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor, I've heard it referred to as the mother's milk of neurons. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor really supports neurons. BDNF is released by glial cells. Certain neurons actually make BDNF. And BDNF does a variety of things. BDNF helps the neuron withstand stress. It helps the neuron withstand oxidative stress. BDNF actually promotes and encourages the neuron to make connections with other neurons. 
increasing synapses or synaptogenesis. And BDNF actually seems to strengthen neurons as well. Now, BDNF has an analog in the periphery, and that's nerve growth factor. So nerve growth factor in the periphery is known as BDNF in the central nervous system. And just to bring you back to glial cells as well, there's also a specific neurotrophic factor known as glial-derived neurotrophic factor produced by the glial cells that actually leads to enhanced support, growth, and resilience of the glial cells as well. So this brings up a lot of questions. The central question is what, what can we do about it? If someone has suffered from depression for a long period of time and their cells show all these deteriorations and injury and so on, do these cells get better? Do they repair themselves as someone goes through treatment? Do we know? Very good question. We know that we can help our patients with major depressive disorder. We can help them with their specific symptoms of depression, and we hope that actually is translating into some repair of the damage that may be caused within the central nervous system. We can use pharmacologic interventions. We can use somatic interventions such as electroconvulsive therapy, and we mustn't forget the importance of psychotherapeutic interventions as well as psychosocial interventions as well. All of the items and tools that we can bring to bear on the problem of major depressive disorder likely has a benefit for our patients with, with major depression. The one thing we do know, at the cellular level, it's a bit more difficult to ascertain whether or not we're seeing improvement, repair, restructuring of the cellular problems that we think occurs with major depression. What we can see when we're looking and utilizing neuroimaging studies, we can see a normalization of blood flow patterns. We can see a normalization of glucose utilization that seems to change and is different in, for example, individuals with major depression versus normal healthy controls. So we see a normalization of the metabolic pathways and patterns once patients respond to our treatments for major depression. Are these neuroimages, I guess um, mostly PET scans, are they sufficiently sophisticated that we can use them as a, as a diagnostic tool or is it still in the research tool area? No, this is far too early to, to contemplate or even begin to utilize these clinically. However, we're finding very small but statistically significant and consistent findings when we're looking at groups of individuals with major depression versus age, gender, IQ matched, educational matched, healthy controls. So we find very small differences, too small to be utilized and helpful on an individual basis, but when we're looking at study populations, we're clearly finding consistent changes in blood flow patterns. We're finding a decreased level of activity in the frontal lobes, those part of the brains that are involved in taking information, juggling the information, making decisions, and then sending that output to the body or the rest of the brain. We see a decreased activity there. But unfortunately, in patients with major depression, we see overactivity in the limbic regions, the limbic regions involved in producing fear, the limbic regions involved in pleasure response. We see a decreased pleasure response in the nucleus accumbens, which typically is involved in pleasure sensitivity in the brain, and we see problems within the hippocampus as well. The hippocampus is critical in memory formation as well as 
memory retrieval, and also providing associations and cognitive associations with some of the feelings and emotional output from the rest of the limbic areas. So we see overactivity of the negative feeling areas and underactivity of the executive pathways in individuals who are suffering from major depression. One of the intriguing studies and lines of thought that's going on is how do we prevent this? And we have some evidence to say that childhood traumas and difficult problems, a lot of stress, may actually be reflected with some sort of predictability as a risk factor for adulthood uh, levels of depression. Any, any thoughts on that? That's absolutely true. There was a large study from New Zealand from Denazi in the Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine just in 2009. And it was a huge study, and it took place over approximately 30 years. They looked at small children who may have been exposed to a number of very sort of stressful events. The stressful events may have been social isolation or neglect, may have been low socioeconomic status, which is very stressful not only for the child, but more importantly the family and obviously reflected in the child's behavior and feelings but also childhood abuse, either physical abuse or sexual trauma. They evaluated these children, over a 1,000 of them, and every two years, up until the age of 32 or so, they evaluated these individuals for the presence or absence of major depression, for the presence or absence of inflammatory markers such as high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. They evaluated them for the presence of metabolic risk markers such as hypertriglyceridemia or adiposity or um, hypercholesterolemia. And then they also wanted to find out whether or not these individuals had more chronic diseases. One of the things that they found is that with an increasing number of childhood adverse events or childhood stressors, over time, one saw increased rates of major depression, increased cumulative rates of inflammatory markers, increased cumulative rates of metabolic risk markers, and chronic diseases. So again, just as you're pointing out, we think that the impact on children very early on, not surprisingly, but now we're having the evidence, leads to long-term chronic changes And again, many of them may be mediated through inflammatory pathways. And this takes us right back to what our teachers many years ago told us, that when it comes to depression, when it comes to understanding all these psychiatric ailments, there is such an interaction between the mind and the body that both have to be taken into consideration in terms of treatment, prevention, and so on. Fascinating, fascinating material. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be alive today, and one only has to wonder how much more information they'll have in another 50 or 100 years. It, it's intriguing. Matthew Thomas is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at the Florida State University, and today we've talked about, or actually taken a tour, of some of the very new and exciting discoveries and thought patterns and directions in the biological understanding of major depression. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much. Thank you.